Welcome everyone to the Metrology Today podcast. My name is Ryan Egbert and I'm your host today. This episode is the first in a series of panel discussions focusing on the topic of risk, as well as some of the disparities and how uncertainties and other things like that are calculated in the industry. I want to make sure to state that in kicking off the show, this is just the beginning of the discussion and only the opinions of the panel members on the show. We welcome others to participate in the conversation. And if you'd like to send us comments or would like to be a guest on the show, please contact us at information at signcalibration.com. In this first episode, it will be featuring Travis Gossman and Henry Zumbrun, but in the follow-on episodes, we will also be joined by Greg Sanker in the discussion. And I know I learned a lot over the course of this conversation. Thank you once again for listening. And here is our risk and uncertainty panel discussion, part one. All right. So joining us today in in this grouping is Henry Zumbrun. Everybody listening to the podcast is familiar with him. He's been on a couple times. He's the president for Morehouse. But we also have a guest, Travis Gossman, who is who on Facebook brought up a really good point, and we wanted to bring him on to start this conversation about uncertainties and risk, and um, specifically some of the things that are happening out in the field. But before we get into that, I wanted him to have a chance to talk about his career and what got you into metrology and what you're doing now. Thanks, Ryan, for having me, first of all. Great yeah, to welcome. be here with you and Henry. Been uh, colleagues of Henry for a number of years now through uh, NCSLI, so really pleased to join you guys. Uh, take it back, 1998, I graduated from tech school and found myself uh, with Rockwell Collins as a calibration technician. I didn't know what calibration was at the time and learned that, was on the bench for a couple of years, spent some time calibrating ACDC, low frequency, a little bit of RF, dabbled in that, ATEs, and then um, went off and did uh, six years of other stuff in the production line and then uh, came back to metrology in January of 2007 and have been there ever since. So 14 years, I've been a metrology engineer and I've covered, uh, again, the ACDC, lower frequency spectrum. I've done a lot of physical dimensional. So uh, force and torque, that's where uh, Henry and I, that's where our domains intersect. And uh, currently doing um, a lot of digital uh, ACDC type um, calibrations as far as documenting specifications, automating. So I write a lot of software, come up with special interconnects. And um, one thing I stepped into several years ago was reviewing calibration certificates. And we have uh, a lot of calibrations we outsource. And the technicians would come to the metrology engineers and ask, uh, hey, does this certificate look right to you? And I kind of kind of worked my way into that niche and uh, am, am head of a, a small committee. We call ourselves the calibration supplier improvement team, where we do things like examining uh, quality with related to our calibration suppliers. Uh, Henry's been pulled in front of that review board and we've, no, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> it's one lab we can trust uh, is Morehouse. I, I'll just give him a pat on the back with that. So uh, did I miss anything else there, Ryan? Good no, intro. that sounds good. Yeah. And okay. welcome. And we're glad to have you. We, I wanted to let the the listeners know this could be a two-part uh, episode. We're going to see how long this runs. We're not going to try and condense anything. And also, this is not the end of the discussion. I'm sure we won't solve all the industry's problems today. Uh, but we also welcome other people to join the discussion in, fu- in future podcasts if you so desire you know we'd like to hear from more people to have angles on this um i we in starting this we are not here necessarily to point fingers or or say names or anything we're not trying to um, cause any feuds but we're trying to address these issues as a whole and i think the the first step is to talk about the problem first so some of those that are uninitiated they can understand what we're going to be talking about and it really comes down to risk. Uh, is that fair to say risk and, and are we reporting uncertainties? Yeah. Um, what are we giving our, 
I view it as what are we giving our customers that they don't even know they're getting? Mm. So yep. Travis, since you, uh, since you're the new guy, you want to kick off with your feelings about, uh, the problem uh, that's Absolutely. out there right now. Yep. Yep. Um, a good assessment starts with a good definition. So I'm going to kind of refine that term just a little bit. It's, it's risk, but specifically the term is measurement decision risk. And I'll, I'll just go with some fundamentals. Don't know your audience here very well, but mm-hmm. when you make a statement of compliance, that is pass or fail, there's a certain degree of risk that you were either right or that you were wrong. You said pass and it really failed. You said failed and it really passed. And there's a lot of terminology surrounding uh, that, but I think if you boil it down to it, that's, that's the essence of it. You were either right or you were wrong. So you, the next step is to ask yourself, well, what happens if I'm wrong? And in the aerospace industry, what happens if we're wrong at the very extreme cases is an airplane goes down. That's not an idle threat. That's the reality of the business that I'm in. Uh, we're in a loss of life business. Uh, is that true of every piece of equipment that we calibrate? Well, no, it isn't. But that is in the extreme cases and with lots of our equipment, we are testing final product that goes on an aircraft. And so our risk tolerance is very low. And that is why measurement decision risk is very near and dear to my heart because guess what? I fly in airplanes. Anybody else fly in airplanes? Yeah. Certainly you guys have. Most of your <laughs> listeners probably have too. So it, it is very important because of that. Yeah. And we also do things like, well, we're in the, the we deal with DOD and um, de- defense contracts. So we want to make sure that the things that we're lobbing around in the air are actually going on target. You don't want to miss your target and take out an innocent. So that's yeah. another aspect, the risk as well. Right. And, and it's, um, those are very good examples of where that risk is. And I know in that, uh, technicians that I've had to train and, and the ones that I've managed out in the field, it goes even into the menu, the simple manufacturing that you think is not that big of a deal or, Hey, it's just a thermocouple calibration, but it could be something that, you know, hardens metal that goes in someone's body or something, you know, it, mm. it is so wide ranging and Henry always brings up bridges, you know, uh, Henry, did you have, mm. uh, anything to add to the, the problem, you know, the, the, he, you know, defining what our actual problem is. On the problem, no, but for the for the for the listeners, uh, I think Travis and I had spoken before. We have several years and history together, and some of the stuff that people see is not always detectable. Such a thing as back torque, you know, the equipment. So it's you know we we discussed last time processes, procedures, and equipment. You there are torque wrenches out there since Travis brought this up that have a back torque, meaning all of that energy that's in that wrench comes back. Now, a lot of the equipment or people calibrating this equipment cannot detect it. So we, in regards to what we're going to talk about today, risk, there's also this trying to trust the manufacturer and having some con- confidence in the manufacturer. Wrenches that say, they, 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 they will tell you about it. It's impact-free, impact-resistant. You know, these types of things, they have these little clutch system in them. And if all that energy comes backwards, guess what? The fastener is, in some cases, is seeing a tenth to a third less torque. Now, what Travis Travis raised raised my eyebrows to let the listeners know, and you have a lot of metrologists in, in that listen to this, is that you really should look. Uh, one one tip is you should look at the wrenches and the manufacturers and question them and see because the ones that are more expensive typically do not have that impact. But the attention is always in the details, and manufacturers will not talk about this unless asked. And what it does, what it did to one of uh, someone we know in the industry, and I think Travis and maybe Ryan, you know, him, is they were making munitions, right? Missiles, rockets. What happens if you go to take out the bad guy, so to speak, and the screws start coming loose on your missile? <laughs> yeah, you got a problem. Big problem. So it's not only about, you know, we're going to talk about risk, but it's not only about that. It, it, there's a lot of that goes together and it's, and it's really getting auditing, 
your vendors, knowing what you're buying, and then trusting the calibration laboratories where you're going to send your equipment to. And that's, mm -hmm. that's kind of this whole discussion today is on the uh, really, what are you getting as a consumer, as a laboratory, what are you getting? Do you know what you're getting from that manufacturer? And what are they doing for your product? Are, are they, are they, going to absorb some of the risk as Travis said on the pass fail side are they going to pass something that someone else may fail when they account for you know a different definition or a different denominator to determine tolerance or, or calculate PFA or whatever it may be whatever decision rule you agree on what what goes in those math equations we were joking about third grade multiplication but back in third grade it was really really simple right such or uh, multiplication and division you master your tables here in metrology we don't it's like the wild west at times mm -hmm. right travis i mean you you've you've reviewed certificates how many people are how many people are doing things in the fashion that are acceptable to you yeah you would think that just simply following the standard uh the regulatory standard be it 17025 z540 mill standard 45662a just you know as long as you're in compliance with it things would be okay uh it's not the case like you said henry it's it's the wild west out there it really is yeah um, and I, I wanted to try something i have a clip from uh our last henry and i's last show where i interviewed him and uh I, I, this caught my ear when, when I was listening to the podcast, you know, before editing or whatever, it's, it's about 45 seconds, but I think he made a good point and I want to see if this, this works out. So bear with me here. So we have to understand the ground rules of what constitutes the risk. What is, again, it's, it's, it's not only just that it's, it's what is the customer doing, understanding their process and working with them because it's not risk is not a one size fits all. Right. That, that leads you to decision rules if you're, if you're going to do a tolerance uh, or, or make a statement of conformance. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to have to debate. Then you have to debate on what goes into the denominator. Are we all calculating things the same? And we're not. As a community, I, I think everybody can, can agree that we're not. Well, there's different rules for we see, we've seen this on Facebook. There's, there's different rules. Right. And different yeah. people are doing different things. Right. And, and they're quoting different standards uncertainties what what goes in the denominator is what he he mentioned in there you know and and i know you've brought up resolution in the past you know and and some places leaving things like that out you know and so um getting the industry on the same page i mean that that's why i played it do you feel like that is what the issue is is that it's just as you guys were saying wild west there isn't a a, a there isn't a um a conformance that is amongst the industry, it seems, even though there's accreditation bodies. Yeah, so I think the, the there's like this macro and then there's this micro um, view of, of what we're calling the Wild West. And that, that um, at, at the macro level, I'm seeing the accreditation process, the compliance to the standard, and even the standard itself as introducing a lot of risk and then at the micro level, we have things like uh, taking resolution into account on the uncertainty of your calibration. And uh, there's other factors in there as well. So that might be something that we can discuss back and forth and making sure that we make that distinction that, you know, there's kind of this micro versus macro. There's a, a system level versus, um, uh, I don't know what you call it, the minutia. Right. Yeah, well, and, and um, I mean, we can even go back to those simple decision rules. You know, the guys that were arguing against what what you guys were trying to get at, you know, they were saying that it's not, you know, it's acceptable in a lot of ways as long as the customer's okay with it. Um, I think another part of this risk discussion is that those customers might be agreeing to things that they don't, that they don't uh, really agree to if they knew exactly what they were getting. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or simply don't understand what they're getting. Right. So that's part of the, part of this is there's, there's three main components. And when I had a, a white paper, I published 2017, I think it was. And I, I said, there's three main components to, 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 to ensuring a good calibration. Number one is the, the customer. You know, I'm sending a piece of equipment to Henry. Uh, so number two is the calibration lab. Henry's calibration lab needs to understand what risk is. 
And then number three is the accreditation body. They're the ones that have the, the oversight to make sure that this process happens properly. And so all three of those pieces have to come together and they have to understand measurement decision risk in order to ensure that we are not putting consumers at risk. That, that's who I have my eye on. Yeah, I've got my eye on my company, but at the end of the day, it's the consumer. Where are these instruments actually being used? And um, I'll just make a quick shot here. <laughs> the, uh, the, the calibration world, this is part of the Wild West issue, I think, is that a lot of uh, commercial cal labs and instrument OEMs lose sight of the fact that measurements do stuff. You know, mm. we're, we're not just taking measurements in a vacuum. We don't just take measurements for the sake of taking measurements. These things are actually doing something. Dr. Jackson, when asked, what's the purpose of calibration? He said this is to make good decisions. And why is that? Because the instruments are doing stuff. We're actually selling product because of these chains of calibrations. And when we introduce too much risk into one of the links of those chains, we set the whole chain, the whole chain gets weak and even broken sometimes. And that's that chain of traceability that we as metrologists are responsible for ensuring. And again, one of those links in my view is, is measurement decision risk. It sounds to me like an education issue across the board, you know, with customers, of course, but also um, part of that wild west that we're talking about is also how technicians, and this is why sign calibration, you know, I started the company is because the, mm. the technician base isn't out there. And when I say a technician base, I mean, also learning those very basic things, you know, of how important and what your uh, measurement uncertainties that you bring and everything does to a calibration chain and traceability, you know? Yeah. So maybe Henry can talk a little bit about how, how he as an instrument OEM, as well as a commercial calibration lab, uh, handles this risk. I'm going to put you on the spot there, Henry, because I know you handle it put, well. Put me, put what, me on the, put me on the spot. So put you on the spot. Easiest thing we do is any, <clears throat> every quotation that goes out says that if you do not, if we do not have the discussion on measurement risk, we are going to use method five from ANSI Z540 handbook, uh, ANSI Z540.3 handbook. Mm -hmm. And we're going to, if you want us to make a conformity assessment, we're going to use that. Now, if, if you want to have the discussion, uh, we can have discussions. We're going to report the uncertainty. That is just, it's outlined in the standards. Now, fortunately, that uh, we just got, uh, as you're bringing this up, and Travis, you talked about the accreditation bodies. Our accreditation body sent out this nice memo on February 9th, 2021, that says, Measurement uncertainty must be reported on all accredited calibration certificates. Language regarding special contractual exceptions has been removed. So when we talk Wild West, it's, it's really knowing the rules, right? What are the rules? So we try to establish the rules with our customers on the, from the time of quotation. And there's lots of questions to mm -hmm. ask. Right. That time of quotation is it's good to point out right here that 17025 that's that's a dictated process in 17025 that you're following the contract review process right Henry part of it yes because part we're doing it, okay. it numerous times along the way it's not just one mm. and done it's not like hey we're just going to do contract contract review is from the time the customer asks for something or from the time you make contact and have that discussion yeah, so you're exchanging technical details about the calibration, and part of those details is the measurement decision risk, right? Yes, and rules. Review. What are the rules? the rules? What are the yeah, adapters? The decision rule. What are the oh. adapters that are going to be used? What's What method mm -hmm. are we going to agree on? Not only risk method, what calibration method? What procedure there? Are there any special yeah. fixtures or adapters? Anything else that we need to be aware of? Is this non-standard? Uh, how are you using the device? Because... The, the bottom line is, even if we get everything, you know, right on the accreditation side, what's what's required, there's still a lot more to do. So what we're talking mm -hmm. about today is just the accreditation side of the business. But there's other things that the end users have to understand, like the equipment side of it. And you said the OEM. Well, hey, if we produced uh, an instrument that, you know, a third of the torque value came off, 
that would be problematic. What's that going to do to your brand and your reputation? This is why it's so important on the prototyping side to dot your I's, cross your T's, and do everything else. When we talk about force, we talk about equipment that's plum, plum, square, rigid, level, and has low torsion because every, every force system has some type of torsion. It can be very, very minute. And sometimes I say no, but when I say no, I really mean super, super low, like several decimal places and a percentage sign low, but it's still there. It's inherent. So it's knowing what you're building, knowing what the application is going to be and trying to do the absolute best you can. I can tell you that when we compare you know, two load cells calibrated in a dead weight frame against each one another, in most of our equipment, the agreement is within 0.01 to 0.02%. That is another, you know, that's basically telling us, hey, two load cells calibrated in dead weight. Are, the machine, the best that we can do probably in our process is around 01 to 02, just right there, because I have two calibrated by primary. And that's before we start even going after all the uncertainties and everything else. But again, we have it, we have the contract review phase, and we, we have double checks, quality checks all along the way. And are we going to get it right with everybody? No, but we want to get, it's that Pareto principle, right? It's that we want to get the 20% that really matters right we want to get what we need to do from the accreditation body right in that other one. If we get to that 95, you know, if we get to that 95% confidence, 98% confidence, we're good. Uh, inherently, you, we could ask a million questions, uh, Travis. We could ask, hey, even though you're sending your adapters, when you, that top block, do you like it? You know, do you have a mark on it? Do you want us to etch a mark on it so we can orient it against, you know, with a connector and note a true zero position? So, I mean, you can take it to the nth de detail. And Jeff Gus was on, and Fluke takes it when he was talking about SPC again. I'm just amazed with how much SPC Fluke does. Uh, it's that's like the nth degree. But it, again, it's awesome. And it's just, you know, as an OEM, do you take shortcuts? for industry or do you do everything you possibly can to ensure that device or that equipment's going to meet its specified or promised requirements? And how do you do your specifications, right? The math for that is all over the place. You can use higher order fits. I mean, there's a lot of things that manufacturers just do not disclose. We, we, we're a primary lab, so we like to be conservative in everything we do. We think that helps us. Does that catch everything? No. When I, I noticed one of the arguments in, in that discussion was manufacturers and specs, you know, Morehouse, you do your, your part and you go above and beyond, but I think, um, you know, some places get in trouble also with OEMs that don't go to the extremes that you do and then utilize those in their processes, you know? Yeah, Travis probably has some stories. I have one, my my favorite story is I, I was sitting down. I was at uh, I was doing something with NIST. When when NIST asks you to do something, you always do it. So it was a it was a it was a CRAMP conference in Florida, and I sat down and had lunch lunch with a gentleman, which I'm not going to name. I he knows who he is, and I, I think the world of him. And and we were just talking about problems in industry, and he said I actually ask a manufacturer to see their data, and they sent me the data. One reading was high. One reading was low and one was in the center and their specification used the average. And he said, he just shook his head. He said, two points out of the three were bad. Wow. So. Yep. yep I've seen that too. Yeah. And they don't think anything of it. Mm. There was a, there's a joke. Can I, can I tell a joke? Yeah. This proves your point. <laughs> Edit this out if you want. <laughs> okay. A mathematician, an engineer, and a statistician went hunting for deer. The, the uh, mathematician sees a deer, stands up, shoots three feet to the left. The engineer stands up three feet to the right. The statistician stands up and says, we got him. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing with your data? Just like Henry said, yep. one point, two points out of tolerance and one in the middle. That's a pass. It, it, uh. it is. Uh, it's the other saying is you can have your, your head in the oven and your feet in uh, in an ice bath nice and point. on average you feel fine. So, mm -hmm. yep. Yep. so averages uh, lots, hide the extremes. Lots to unpack there, Ryan. Where should we begin? Well, I, you know, I, there's a lot of this. I, I was looking also at, um, you know, you guys pop out resources 
uh, like it's nothing, you know, it's like lab 48 and, and some of those things that were pointed out, mm-hmm. you know, where you don't have to take in the uncertainty, uh, with the, if you have the three to one or whatever, in my experience, a lot of this is education based, but this is also that labs are in a weird position these days that I think it's a lot of, from where they're at now, there's a lot of work to get to the point that they need to be where they can do this stuff with customers the way that I think that we're discussing, you know, uh, some of them might not be able to communicate these things in a way that a customer will, or they don't even have the capability. Does that make sense? Like them themselves as as a lab. So is, is education of, of the industry, uh, the biggest or best way to address this type of thing? I would say, yes, that's one of the critical components. I'll just jump in here. Uh, education is a key to solving a lot of problems. And so, I, and again, I'm going to point my fingers at all three components here. Me as a customer, I am educating my group uh, of engineers. I call them mine. I'm on the group of engineers. What measurement decision risk is, how to properly um, review calibration certificates from our suppliers, and just to see what exactly they're doing, taking measurement uncertainty into account. Why is that? Because they're not doing it in a standard uniform fashion. Um, the allowance of a decision rule that does not take uncertainty into account is a problem. We see that on many, many, many calibration reports. And then the, the OEM, our, our suppliers, I have to work with them and oftentimes they're accredited. I've, I've had way too many conversations with uh, lab managers, quality engineers, quality managers, directors, heck far, even presidents with, hey, did you know your TUR is, 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 is less than one-to-one? And then I, I get a lot of answers that, that say, what's a TUR? These are from accredited labs. So they need education. And then the accreditation bodies themselves, uh, all the assessors need to, need, need to understand measurement decision risk and why it's not baked into 17025 uh, and why it is important for the customer. We actually do stuff with our equipment. Right? Again, I'm going to mm-hmm. keep going back right. to that. The measurements mean something. Um, so yes, certainly education is a key component of it. Uh, and then I'm also going to say, and I, I don't mean to take the conversation too far this other direction, but I think the standard itself needs fixing. I'll be honest. 17025 mm-hmm. allows too much risk into a process that is already murky because of poor accreditation processes, because of poorly educated calibration labs, because of poorly educated customers. Uh, Jerry Hayes, when he came out with the four to one rule, actually, I think he started with the three to one rule. He kind of did them. He, he did us a great service, but it, it, it's a double edged knife. He did us a great disservice because now that was a risk that was just baked in the mill standard four, five, six, six, two a and Z five forty dot one. It just said, make sure your TAR is four to one and go with life. And people didn't understand why you just do the four to one rule, pass your calibration on. And now that 17025 came along and they stripped out those requirements for a minimum risk level, the industry has kind of forgotten why they're doing what they're doing. And, and we've allowed a, a lot of drifting away from this core basic principle of, are we putting our customers at risk? It was a whole reason that, that Jerry Hayes was kicked into gear, right? They, they had the, uh, it was a directed weapons program in 55. I'm seeing some nods from Henry. They, yeah, they, they yeah, wanted to hit stuff. the bad guys. They didn't want to hit the good guys. How do we ensure that with our calibrations? And that's, you know, rewind the tape. I just said that a few minutes ago. <laughs> and now we find ourselves back in that almost similar position of, hey, how do we go forward? And us aerospace guys are going, bring back Z40, Z540. It, it had it baked in and, and, and it, it's a low risk document. Yeah, dot three handbook dot three certainly has uh, enough in the denominator, and it was what Hayes and uh, Crandon, and they used uh, TAR because it was downright easy test accuracy yeah. ratios, downright easy, and it was only to be a stopgap solution until mm-hmm. better computing power came out. Now, yep. I don't know, Ryan. Answer me this. Travis can hop in. 1950s computing power to 2021 computing power is it better? Oh yeah, uh, I would say by slightly. <laughs> 
slightly. Yeah, like slightly better. Our, our cell phones have yeah. more of the, the device we carry with us to answer a call and text our loved ones and mm -hmm. make emojis and do whatever it has more power than anything in what the 70s, 80s and, and 90s combined. Mm -hmm. Yeah, early mm -hmm. 2000s even I think is when yep. they are comparing. Yeah, so, so there's no doubt that there's a education issue, but I think there's also um, the standard is putting our industry at risk as well. So that's my two main pieces. I break things into simple bits. Did you notice that? These two pieces here, this piece, these two pieces yeah. here. Well, I, I think there's also a little bit, and, and you guys, this is my opinion, but you correct me if you think differently. I think there's also, I don't know if it, it's not necessarily best described as pride, but like people just don't want to be told they're doing something wrong. You know, they've been in this forever. And, uh, you know, how do you guys feel about when you, have these discussions and you bring up other standards, but then they're like, Hey, I, I follow the 17025, you know, those other ones are European standards or whatever, you know, I, I don't know. Um, cause I'm, I'm newer to this type of stuff. How do you guys feel about when those uh, rebuttals are brought back to the discussion of, you know, we, the 17025 says simple decision rule is fine, you know, so we're good. Yeah, I can I can start and hopefully Travis can jump on this. So it's it's been reading a lot lately, and and one of the books is uh, Words That Work. Frank Luntz wrote it. That you know, it's not what you say, it's what people hear. But that also applies to the standards. It's what people read, and if the standards have words like should, people have a scapegoat. I think Travis is on to a lot with what he's saying here, and it's it just comes back to the fact that. What is the wording? What is the intent of the standard? If it's not clear, people will interpret it all kinds of different ways, right? And that's really what it amounts to. Travis and I are probably 99% aligned, maybe we're 98% aligned on how we interpret things, but there's going to be a 2% that we, that we disagree on. That's okay, but that should go back to the committee to fix, right? It's constantly involving and improving. If, if you're not, if, if the metrology community is not continually improving, we have problems. And, and I think what Travis has posted and the reason we're having this is because what are we doing? Why are we, do, you know, it took us years uh, and years to agree on that TUR denominator that came out in 2006. And now we're trying to reinvent things yet again with test value uncertainty, the like, different manufacturers are out there, they're on committees, they're paying people to publish papers, right, that, that further uh, present their agenda, which is let's backdoor our way out of some of these requirements by putting it in our standards. And they're doing that on committees. And there's only a few people anymore that'll stand up and fight against them. And then they can be found non-persuasive. If they get enough people in the group, the few people that know this is an issue, they can be found non-persuasive. We were told, one time we were told a story about contracting, and I hate bringing this up, and but I want to bring it up, is that there was a known issue and people were dying. And it took, still took two years to get that manufacturer barred and that contract canceled. That needs to change. Yeah, that's crazy. Well, I don't know how to tag onto that except to say yes. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> um, education. I, I think that's what it goes back to. When, when like you said, um, some devious statements are made by OEMs and creative problem solving techniques are introduced into committees there isn't enough horsepower by the listeners to understand what they're doing and why that's bad and that is part of what what i'm doing at my my company as well is making sure they understand and i use that as an example that one manufacturer that we're kind of hinting at that this is a practice that's bad and we can see right through it it's it's simply being used to sell more product and for those that I, I can see it, I understand what's going on and I see right through it and I can issue a caution about it, but only at my company. Uh, so education there is, is the key to that. But then how do we disseminate that amongst the, um, the professionals? I think that's what we're here for. 
right, Ryan? Right, well, Ryan? Yeah, what, what would be a good solution for it, though? Is it is it mm-hmm. should the listeners like address and start looking at how they are? I don't know, even selling their services. I because one thing to me is I know that um, a lot of times the cut the customers are kind of being spoon fed the four to one, you know, like, Hey, this, this, the accuracy of our standard is enough for this, you know, whatever calibration I'm doing. Are you okay with us using this? And this is the accuracy comparison and the customers, you know, say, yeah, whatever. Um, But looking at the labs, I think in some ways that, well, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think in the mindset of some of these labs and I'm wondering if they're maybe feeling forced to do this because they're afraid that they don't have a lot of those things worked out because of their their um, technicians' abilities and everything, that maybe they can't they can't even communicate that. I, I like yeah. it. I, I I can I can jump in a little bit here. It's it's look. We used to have training metrologists used to happen almost. You know, the government, military, a lot of people went through training. Uh, that has dried up. It still happens, but it's at a fraction. And the people mm-hmm. that and the people that are the true metrologists, right, are getting older. They're retiring, mm-hmm. and it's dried up. So now companies are struggling. We struggled. Uh, Morehouse struggled. We just hired a quality manager that 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 met our needs, right? And it took a long time to get a person that was that had everything we wanted. It's just the, the talent pool isn't out there and it's going to get mm-hmm. worse. Uh, there's predictive indexes, and I forget who wrote the paper that basically said in the next 10 years, it's going to shrink again. They say A, B, and C level talent, right? And that A level talent is those people are, are all getting jobs. So in house, we now is the time for us as a community to start the training, start the education process, do the, do the things we need to do because it's just going to get worse. Right? right. That's how I see it. And if we if we're not doing it, Ryan, if you're not having this podcast and we're not doing it and Travis isn't on here and people aren't speaking up, we're going to go back. You know, uh, history will repeat itself. We'll go back to T.A.R. days and, you know, anything flying and four to one T.U.R. concept. I absolutely hate and I hate it because it doesn't tell you anything about the location of the measurement. Right. I like right. P.F.A. Right, Travis, you could start talking about this. I mean, I like when we actually yeah. look at where the measurements being made, draw the draw the draw the curve and figure out what the our probability of false accept is or what our actual risk is, how much over the curve, how much of, of our uncertainty goes over the tolerance limit. And we say this, you know, a manufacturer says our device is good to plus or minus one percent of full scale, right? Just simple, simple numbers. Now, if, if you're making a measurement and you're four times better than that, if you're right on the line, you're still going to have a lot of risk. And people don't get that. They just say four to one click. We're still back. Ryan and Travis, we're still back in the days of people are still saying this traceable and they're still using four to one TAR. We haven't even involved to TUR, which was published in 2006 as part of that ANSI Z540.3. That's not. And then until we even have TUR rooted in our discussions, we're now people are trying to change it to TVA, test value uncertainty. Uh, it's, yeah. it's, it's a mess. And, and what I want to say, the only other thing I want to say about this is, is Scott Mims. Uh, I think we, most people in the metrology community know him. Hopefully he comes on and does a podcast. That guy, he is the guy with measurement risk. I, I, he does a two-day class. He's phenomenal. He write, he wrote a paper and he talked a lot with Hayes and, um, it was the other person here. It was uh, I'm going to say his name name wrong. Travis Del, Del Caldwell. Caldwell, yeah. So he talked a lot with them, and they've they've mm-hmm. published papers where they did hey T A R to T U R. Yes. They did, their one example was a digital micrometer. T A R was twenty five to one. Mm-hmm. Everybody in the world would probably say I want that back in the fifties and sixties. Today you use that same micrometer and you use a T U R formula. It's one and a half to one ratio. So 25 to one TAR yeah. becomes one and a half to one TUR. Yeah, right. that's one of the exact examples that I use in my training on uncertainty and how to take that into account here at Collins. Um, I was trying to sniff around here 
you, you were saying we're going to have to uh, go back to the 1950s all over again. The founding of NCSLI, by the way, there's an article here. Yeah. Hey, Collins, founding member, by the way. Um, this nice. article was written in 1980-something where they were interviewing some of the originators. And they said, um, you know, the author says, and I quote, um, Hank Deniman of Leeds and Northrop recalls, the industry's thought leaders deplored the state of the instrument industry and the lack of reliability of measurement systems to produce data closely related to scale definitions, uh, unquote. And that was why they started NCSLI. There was a group of them that said, we're pretty deplorable. <laughs> the state of the industry needs help. And so they threw together the people that cared about it. And you can look down through the list here and they're almost all aerospace and defense. And there's some OEMs in there too. But those loss of life businesses were the whole reason behind the impetus of, of starting NCSLI back in 1961, 6061. It was kind of a phase in. Uh, yeah. And that's where I'm finding myself now. It feels like I'm, I'm saying, guys, the state of the industry out there is kind of sort of deplorable right now. And unless you think I'm just doing this shooting from the hip or because I had a few bad calibrations, I, I wish I could spend hours going over the stack of certificates at my desk that are horrible. And it's everything from this one says we, we didn't take uncertainty into account. Well, and then it goes all the way up to this. It, there was a brand new standard that we had purchased that, that does a physical dimensional type measurement. I'm, again, I'm not going to name names or the industry. And the instrument was actually calibrated by National Measurement Institute. And the certificate was passed to us. And I reviewed it. And the data actually indicated it was out of tolerance. And the manufacturer gave it to us. The OEM said, here's your brand new instrument that we spent six figures on. And they said that they didn't even make a pass or fail statement. This was an accredited calibration. And this is a this this high-end standard, I am going to tell you what it is because it's important. It measures pressure. Actually, it, it puts out pressure. And we use it to characterize air data computers. Air data computers are used to tell how high up in altitude an aircraft is. And you have to maintain a certain minimum vertical separation so that paths of airplanes don't cross too closely, uh, especially so they don't hit each other. And this thing was out of tolerance in the pressures where higher altitudes would be, right where airplanes fly. Wow. And that is one of dozens and dozens of dozens of CalCERTs that are on my desk from accredited companies, 17025 accredited companies, and they put people at risk and it's got to stop. Uh, so I, I'm going to echo the guy from Leeds and Northrop and say, this is deplorable. <laughs> Things have got to change. So yeah. Yeah, and what happens soul. and what, yeah, what, what happens uh, when uh, Travis, just for, for everyone out there, what, and I'm being, mm -hmm. I'm being little snarky here because uh, for those that don't know me, sometimes I don't really enjoy flying. I'll do it. Uh, I like newer planes opposed to the older planes just because they have the instrumentation in them to avoid things and they're less turbulent, less rocky or whatnot. But yep. uh, those that don't know me that well, uh, sometimes I watch, you know, stuff at night that I probably shouldn't watch, like airplane collisions, airplane <laughs> crashes, you know, things, things that generally when you don't, you know, when, when you kind of kind of a little bit concerned with flying uh that you shouldn't watch but uh one night i'm watching this and it was and i had to look it up and it there's a there's a flight that uh left uh brazil to rio and it was a 737 and it broke up in mid-air what what ended up happening was another jet i think a golf stream right clipped it absolutely just clipped the wing off of the plane and those people i'm sure they died instantly but man can you imagine as a can like you know this this instrumentation you're talking about an airplane even if they see each other and they try to divert one clips the other one can you imagine a plane breaking apart in midair and doing 360 tailspins down to the down to earth i mean you'll die immediately because you're in you're in high altitudes yeah. it just it's 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 atrocious um, since yeah. you're in this business, uh, let, let me ask you this, mm -hmm. 
when a plane does go down, they do testing because they want to determine if it's pilot error, error or, or mechanical failure. So can you can you elaborate a little bit about that? Well, they don't invite me to those meetings, first of all. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's, there's a lot of uh, people with stars on their shoulders that get involved in that usually uh, or suits and earpieces. But no, I, I don't get involved in crash investigations. Our... Okay. Our boxes that, that we produce, our avionics, so far, to my knowledge, and I, I heard a presentation several years ago, we've never been responsible for an in-air accident uh, causing um, casualties. Uh, and and I'm pretty proud of that. I've had a couple, um, just through the military, you know, over time, you know, accidents happen. And when they do, I mean, people show up at your lab and start looking through your paperwork, start looking through all your yeah. processes, everything. But how, how do you de how do you defend it, right? When you write these standards, when you say, oh, "Hey, we're going off of this this obscure thing that says as long as I'm four uh, four to one TAR, let's go TAR, which is outdated mm -hmm. and shouldn't be." They're going, "Hey, I'm I'm this traceable here, and I got a four to one TAR here." How do you? What happens when they go through those labs? I mean, those labs are thinking they're good. People get fired. Yeah. People get fired. People's careers get ruined. I mean, it's bad. I mean, they can, if it's fraudulent, they can go to jail. I, I don't think a lot of people out there in the industry right now doing calibrations and, you know, haven't had any type of real education in it or whatever. I don't think a lot of them understand their liabilities in some of this as well. Mm -hmm. Calling something good when it's actually bad. Yeah, yeah, because the producer's risk is not, no one cares about that. I mean, really, I mean, we care about it as companies. I'm sure, you know, Collins cares about it, but it only costs, it only costs us money. It doesn't cost the consumers. Consumers aren't going to die because we had to, internally, we we messed up and our processes were, were such that we had to redo things, right? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, we're being pretty nice in this conversation, assuming that all of these labs are have the best intentions and want to do everything the way it is, you know, it's supposed to be. But I'll ask that, uh, I'll ask that question. How much of this, or do you, do you guys feel like in the industry, there are places that maybe do know this, but because simple acceptance or simple decision rules are okay with many of their customers, they just kind of uh, don't do it because of the extra work or, you know, whatever involved. Hmm. It's a great question. It, it's it just I don't know. I, I'm still trying to figure out why some do. You know, we try. I, I, I I've talked to Ryan. So we're not calibration police. So we're just on here trying to right, trying yeah. to save someone. Right. <laughs> trying to hoping yeah. that Ryan, one of your listeners, says. I'm going to dig a little deeper on what my lab's doing, and maybe we'll start being just better. James Clear's book, Atomic Habits, recommend it for everybody. I'll talk about it forever because it basically says if you can get 1% better per week in 72 weeks, you will be twice as good as you are today. If we as a metrology community can just say, hey, let's start doing things that lower this risk. We don't have to do a wholesale change overnight, but we have to make an effort as a group to get better. So it's e either we're going to do that or the consumers, which represent a lot more people to go out and educate, right? Mm -hmm. Or we're going to have educate all of the consumers, which is just masses of masses to what their risk level is and what they should be doing. And my point that I said, I don't see anyone on the consumer level um, I know there are some out there that are very good and knowledgeable, but I see very, very few on the consumer level that understand this, that are going to know that this instrument was passed to them and that maybe what's stated on there, this is plus or minus 1% or 0.1% or whatever the tolerance is, they don't understand that there's a lot more to it than just that. And that, that they, they're going to think, hey, I can use this as long as I'm within this plus or minus 0.1%, I'm good, right? I mean, that's, that's what I get as a general, you know, uh, voice of industry of the consumer level. And they're not going to understand that they have to go do all these other things, right? And maybe after they do all the other things, that 0.1% is only 0.05. Right. Yeah. So number one, raise awareness. Uh, I think that's why we're both here. And the number two right. is education. 
So I can't help but wonder if somebody's sitting out there saying, okay, education, where do I start? What oh, types yeah. of resources? Hey, Stein would Calibration we School. Hey, Stein Calibration School. Pulls it right back. Well, it is definitely yeah. where, and, and of course, I, I, I never bring this stuff up for pure <laughs> advertisement, but it is <laughs> something that we are, like, that's the whole purpose, right? Is so that everyone has the same basic background of education and then they can kind of diverge from there you know if they need if they're mostly doing force you know they can go through higher levels of force calibration principles with henry and people that actually that is their focus you know what i mean mm-hmm. uh i'm also curious um going back to the education but but you guys also henry also said we're not the calibration police i'm just curious and i'm kind of new to the civilian world game but when is it going to be a little bit bigger of a deal you know if if these type of calibrations are happening and they're affecting uh, loss of life or you know even if it's separated by a calibration or two and it's still loss of life effective even though maybe that one thing you know isn't tied directly to loss of life but it's processes down the road you know when is it going to be a big deal it's a great question as soon as as soon as law start lawsuits start coming i think it's going to be a big deal right until until that happens a lot of companies are gonna I, i like the movie fight club because if you remember he's sitting on a plane edward norton's character is sitting on a plane discussing what he does and the with a manufacturer with insurance and i and i i haven't watched it recently but he's basically saying hey if the cost of the lawsuits will outweigh the recall we're going to do the recall, right? So that's mm. what I'm seeing. If we're drawing a comparison to that, it's almost like you're seeing the same thing with costing, right? Bottom, bottom profit, everything profit, profit, right. books on yes. profit. Let's rebrand profit as freedom. Let's do this other stuff. Everything is driven by profit. And if and until that number gets really, really hit, I don't see I don't see it changing. I see them. I see these people that will continue to try to drive and and push the envelope because they can get a little bit more in the margin if they don't have to do the right things. I take the stance as a company and a president of our company. Maybe the next president won't take the same stance. I'm hoping to be here a long time. I take the stance of if you do the right things, you're naturally will be successful. It's hard, mm-hmm. uh, but eventually you will be successful. Uh, people will know. And your brand and the other ones will sink. But a lot of people don't want to wait around 10, 15 years for people to sink. So they're going to join and they're going to, you know, do the, you know, get on that same board and do the, hey, they're doing the minimum. We can do the minimum and make make the same amount of money. So really, the answer, the answer is it's a difficult one. It's, it's separating those that want and care about society and want to do the right thing versus versus probably those that are just profit driven and just can get away with it. Yeah, it's unfortunate. I, I wish there was, because um, I, I mean, nobody wants to see more regulation or laws and, and you know, or, or us have to start having licenses or anything like that. But, you know, it's it, with just what I've, I, I've seen in my own career, you know, it's it's frustrating to the, that some people just don't understand that importance or in some cases they just kind of say whatever you know i'm just trying to do my job and this is the way we do it here i did want to wrap around i i did have a thought you know going back to the four to one thing and its prevalence and how it's outdated but you know for Mm -hmm. the longest time our greatest pool of technicians comes from the military which obviously that's what we we taught in the military is four to one i don't think a lot of us and myself included under kind of have that frame of reference where you have to think yourself in the military as you are an internal Calab. You're not a provider necessarily going out. I mean, there are some labs that will do other things, uh, but you know, the higher depot level ones, but in general lab that you're working at that, those risks, the things that we're talking about were figured out by engineers and, and people writing those procedures but it's not transferable going out to the civilian world. And I didn't understand that guys. I, I didn't come out, you know, I came out like, Hey, I ran Cal labs. I knew all this stuff. I four to one, you know, that's what we go by now, you know, understanding more of the impact of that. I think that's where a lot of that disconnect come from is 
four to one is good enough for the military, but there is a lot that goes behind that determination. And, you know, how important is this for what we're doing? Because uh, Travis, you brought up air data test sets, you know, we're very familiar with those in the Marine Corps. And those are like one of those that are a scary one to work on because of how, you know, and even shipping them, I had, you know, running a mm -hmm. lab, you have to worry about them going deployment. And there's just so yep. many considerations, but not every single lab manager understood that, you know, and it's just, I, I'm kind of ranting here, but it's more of a frustration on my yeah. end. And I feel like, um, well, you brought us these... on here to rant, right? Right. That's right. Yeah. Two hours of ranting. <laughs> Two hours of ranting. You're welcome. <laughs> It'll go longer. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, but, but I mean, do you guys kind of understand what I'm saying? That some of this originates from our best technic yeah. technician options, and then it just kind of gets perpetuated. And until, and we do offer free training to the military guys, uh, for any of you listening, by the way. So maybe we can help bridge some of those gaps as well. Um, but that is definitely, I think, where some of this, the genesis of some of these issues may come from in certain laboratories. Yeah. And, and so that goes back, you know, where did the four to one even come from? And that was the the days of Jerry Hayes. And and again, it was a double edged sword. We needed something simple, easy and and fast. And that's what we had. So now moving forward, how do we move forward better with um, better ways to calculate risk. And by the way, the interview in 2007 that Jerry Hayes had with, um, um, help me out, Howard. Castrop? Castrop. Was yeah. it Was it him or was it, I mean, there's another. It's Mims or Castrop, one of the two. They, okay. they interviewed him and, and Hayes threw himself under the bus and he said, I can't believe they're still using that outdated four to one rule. Yep. Uh, so the, the, the grandfather of metrology said, come on guys, you need to be doing better. Uh, so how do we move forward with that, I, I think is the question. You're right, Ryan, That's that four to one rule has just been around so long and you, you just do it and everything's okay. Um, okay, now we're asking the industry to change. How? Oh, how do already, you take uncertainty into account? We already asked them to change back in 2006 and everybody agreed on the changes back then. Right. And then I think uh, to add to that, I think Jerry Hayes, if I'm not mistaken, he said TAR should be RIP ASAP. I think he commented and laughed <laughs> about that. I've, I've heard that. Pat, I've not heard him say it directly, but I've heard that passed down from I, several people. I think that was a Dillip Shaw original quote. It right was there, a Dillip Shaw, but I think he said, Jerry, uh, it might be. Jerry Dillip, may have said it first. Okay. Jerry may have said it, it might be. He's, they're friends. I know they're, I know they're friends. So. <laughs> oh, good. Uh, at least their Facebook friends. Who who knows with 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 what on that? But yeah, Dillip, Dillip does say that he says uh, he goes yeah uh, T A R should be R I P A S A P. And it, it, what you started with Ryan is it's the a closed system. A four to one is not a it's not really a horrible practice in a closed system. It's when we open up the world, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So. Travis or, or Navy or, or, or whomever could say, we're going to buy all of this equipment. We know it. We put it through the ringer. We're doing absolutely everything we can. And then we're going to buy this equipment to calibrate it. And they're doing so much behind the scenes that just normal people will not do to ensure they meet that. And when, they, when you do something mm -hmm. like that, a four to one may work. When you don't understand all your inputs, your outputs, your mechanical interactions, electrical interactions, and all the other stuff, and the manufacturing manufacturers that just throw specification sheets around that are using, you know, high, low, taking the average, you're, you're, it just becomes chaos. If you, if you're the government and can evaluate, spend the money and can evaluate systems and can standardize your process, your procedures and, and get that right equipment, maybe four to one can work for you. Maybe a 10 <laughs> to one can work for you, but you know, I'm glad you came in defense of that. <laughs> I, I I was going to jump in there sometime. We we claim compliance is E540.1. So four to one TARs are are where we live right now. But it's because of just what you said. We don't just throw four to ones uh, and splash it around the entire factory. We do a whole lot more, and I can't divulge a whole lot more into the production line and where our instruments actually get tested, our our, our devices, our our widgets, if you will. And and you're exactly right. The Navy does the very same thing. We, we had a meeting with them about a year ago on a project that we were doing with them. And 
and, and the, the two Navy guys were coming from the Corona office and they sat down, they were metrology guys. And I was just like a breath of fresh air. I was like, you guys speak my language. You know what's going on. All right, we can have discussions. This is good. They understood risk. And, and it was all based around that requirement of four to one TAR. And that's acceptable in, in a lot of industries. Um, hey, it put us on the moon, okay? So back off. Yeah, now yeah. we have five successful landings on Mars, Mars from uh, the JPL team. I don't yep. know. I don't yep. think they're using four to one TAR, but. Uh, no, it was 10 to one back in the day. I, I <laughs> shot my mouth off, but still, it got us to the moon. Okay, so so there. It did. It did. But people understood a lot more about equipment and they were asking yeah. more of the right questions, right? Yeah. Yeah. And now they're not asking safety nets wrapped around the, the production process. And, and now they're not asking. Yeah. That's yeah. I, I think it's generated a lot of met metrological laziness switching over to 17025. You know, it, it doesn't dictate the minimum risk level anymore and nobody knows why that's important. Uh, I'm not going to say nobody that's speaking in hyperbole. <laughs> a lot right. of the industry doesn't understand why measurement decision risk is important. Why, why is, uh, not taking uncertainty into account a bad thing, Travis. I might hear several people asking. It's allowed, Travis. That's okay, right? Um, can I bring Lab 48 in? Because this is something Henry actually clued me in on. Yeah. All right, everyone. That's where we're going to stop for this discussion for now. Part two will be coming next week. Thank you. If you made it this far, thank you so much for participating in this discussion. And I look forward to hearing any comments or suggestions that you may have for the future discussions. And thank you once again for listening. <laughs>